Well, today in your Faith Runs Deep series, I've been asked to speak on Matthew 25, 31 to 45. So, Stephen, I think you're going to do the Bible reading. Oh, he's, oh watch out for that water, mate. <laughs> he's going to bring our Bible reading. So if you have your Bibles or your little apps with you, uh, it's going to be on the screen there as well. Thanks. The sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much. Author Ray Stedman has written, the arresting thing about this passage is that Jesus is clearly saying the ultimate mark of an authentic Christian is not his creed or her creed his or her faith or their Bible knowledge, but the concern which they show for those in need. The practical demonstration of love is the final proof. Elsewhere, Jesus states that no one will be able to identify, uh, that, that one will be able to identify false prophets by their fruit. How do you know if a prophet is speaking prophetically to you? You'll know them by the fruit of their lives. False prophets will not produce good fruits. Fruits, which are a common metaphor in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, represent the outward manifestation of a person's faith. Their behavior and their works. You'll know them by their fruit, sometimes after a short period of time, sometimes after a long period of time. The sheep and the goats. This passage reminds me of when I first became a believer in Jesus Christ. So again, in my teenage years, Alex, around that time, I was exposed to the music and life of an amazing musician by the name of Keith Green. Who remembers Keith Green? Okay, a few of you will remember Keith. 
He emerged during a time in America when arguably there was one of the biggest movements of God's spirit that swept across the youth and the young adults in particular of the United States of America around the same time as the hippie movement of the late 60s and early 70s. And it's a period of time that's been very well depicted in a recent movie that's called The Jesus Revolution. Anybody seen that? Just two or three of you. It was such a short uh, release in the cinemas, The Jesus Revolution. If you get an opportunity to check it out online or something like that, do it. It's a very worthwhile movie to see. Well, Keith grew up reading the New Testament and called the mixture of being Jewish and learning about Jesus an odd combination. And it left him open-minded, but equally confused and deeply unsatisfied. So he was searching for something deeper. As a teen, perceiving his music career had failed, he ran away from home and he began smoking marijuana and used some psychedelics in hopes of finding spiritual truth and enlightenment. And he became interested in Eastern mysticism and the free love culture that was gripping the United States in particular at the time. He became interested in uh, that Eastern mysticism and his five-year spiritual quest eventually led him back to the Bible, God's word. And writing in his diary in December 1972, he said, Jesus, you are hereby officially welcomed into me. Tragically, Keith died in a plane crash at age 28, along with 11 other passengers who were on that same plane. Well, one of Keith's songs that deeply impacted me as an early Christian, apart from one of my favourite songs being The Prodigal Son, and, and Keith's songs were all really long songs. They weren't two and three minute things that you played on the radio. They were masterpieces. One of the songs was based on this parable, The Sheep and the Goats. It goes for eight minutes. And if it hadn't gone for so long, I probably would have played it today just to get it into your head about this passage we're reading. You can check it out again, the passion and the beauty of this song on YouTube. So might be worth doing. However, he concludes this song with the words, and the only difference, the only difference between the righteous and the wicked is what they did and didn't do. Oh. It had an impact, this song. And singing as a prophet to the church there in the 70s, Keith Green, he scared a lot of Christians. <laughs> what if I'm a goat? What if, what if I'm not really a sheep? I've, I've never visited anyone in prison. Is that what you're supposed to do? Am I really going to heaven? Or am I going to be sent to hell? Am I really saved? That's what happened as a result of that song. And sadly, I recall a man in my church uh, some years ago. He was a guy, a mature Christian. He'd grown up in the Christian faith most of his life. And yet he was plagued with fears and doubts and uncertainty about his salvation. And one of my roles as one of his pastors was just to try and bring him some reassurance about his faith. But he was never convinced that he was good enough. He was constantly worried about dying and not securing God's love for him and the work that Jesus had done on the cross for him. 
GotQuestions.org suggests in the parable of the sheep and the goats, we're looking at a man redeemed and saved and a man condemned and lost. Again, Jesus often used contrasts. A casual reading seems to suggest that salvation is the result of good works. You do some good things for some poor people, marginalised people, you'll get to heaven. You don't do good things for people, you're out. You're not part of the elite. The sheep acted charitably, giving food and drink and clothing to the needy. The goats, they showed no charity. And this seems to result in salvation for the sheep and damnation for the goats. That's the casual reading of this passage. However, Scripture, by and large, doesn't contradict itself. And the Bible clearly and repeatedly teaches that salvation is by faith alone, through the grace of God and not by our good works. So you can look up in John and Acts and Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, all over the New Testament that reinforces that. It's not about doing good things to be good enough to become a sheep to get to heaven. You can't earn your way to heaven by by trying to be a good person. In fact, Jesus himself makes it clear in the parable that the salvation of the sheep is not based on their works. Their inheritance was theirs since the creation of the world. I love that reinforced in Ephesians 2, that God knew each and every one of us before he created the world. What an awesome thought. He knew our names. He, He knew us individually before he created this amazing world. Long before they could ever do good works. We're not saved by works. We're saved for works. And this passage was really all about the least and the last and the lost, which is what Kat suggested I speak into a little bit today. The least, the last, and the lost. The good works mentioned in the parable are not the cause of salvation, but the effect of salvation. As Christians, we end up becoming more like Jesus. And I, when I discuss Christianity with non-Christians, I try to steer away from the religious thing because Jesus was the furthest thing away from religious. And in fact, he, he condemned a lot of the religious elite. Uh, and so I try to talk about spirituality and the like. The good works mentioned here are not the cause, but the effect of salvation. And as Christians, we're to become more like this character of Jesus, which is how I try to engage people. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Way before Kath and Kim said, look at me, look at me. Jesus said, look at me and you'll discover what God is like. And Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This is the result of God's work in your life, that you'll become like Jesus, the character. Or in Galatians, it's character, which is the Greek word, the likeness, like looking in a mirror and seeing Jesus reflected back. He, God wants to form Jesus into the life of believers and that we will be like the fruit of that, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good. But the trouble is there's a lot of Christians that are just striving to be like that. I remember another guy back in the 70s and 80s who became a a well-known speaker and preacher and healer of the healing movement in the 80s and 90s across the world, John Wimber. He grew up in Orange County in uh, California. 
And I remember vividly once in the late 90s him sharing with a whole group of people. He's saying, I grew up in Orange County and I remember two, three o'clock in the morning listening to the orange trees in the fields of the orchards going, producing oranges. And everyone's laughing, going, what? He goes, of course not. You don't hear them producing. They're not striving. They're not like constipated Christians producing good fruit. But we've got a lot of us trying to be good, striving to be good. No, it should be the natural result of God at work in our lives. Good works in a Christian's life are the direct overflow of these traits and only acceptable to God because of the relationship that exists between servant and master, saved and saviour, the sheep and the shepherd. The relationship between that sheep and that shepherd. The core message of the parable of the sheep and the goats is that God's people will love others. Good works will result from our relationship with the shepherd. Followers of Christ will treat others with kindness, serving them as if they're serving Christ himself. The ungenerate life live in the opposite manner. While goats can indeed perform good acts of kindness and charity, their hearts are not right with God and their actions are not right for the right purpose, which is to honour and to worship God, to surrender. I mean, Alex, you going down there in the waters is basically an act of surrender. I died to myself. That's what I did as a teenager in the end. I had ambitions for a different life. I was going to live a very different life here on earth. But I surrendered. I died to myself as I discovered Christ. And he's given me a much more fulfilling life in the end. But it comes with surrender. It comes with cost. It comes with sacrifice to honour and to worship God. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 1, it's, this is a passage that's often read out in weddings, and we know it well, where we discover the nature of love. We're discovering what the Apostle Paul reminded the church at Corinth about, about the necessity of love for Christians. Let me paraphrase it for a bit. If I'm a super spiritual giant, and I've got spiritual gifts coming out my eyeballs, but I don't have love, I'm an idiot. If I attend Bible study groups and I can expound the greatest Bible studies and I pray the most faith-filled prayers so that the sick are healed and the blind can see, but I don't have love, I'm a nobody. If I give away all I have, but I don't have love, I've gained nothing. So important is love that it's got to be foundational to everything else I do or profess as a Christian. You call yourself a Christian, you've got to have love. Jesus has invaded your life. There's got to be love there somewhere. You speak in tongues. You have the gift of healing. You get up for the 6 a.m. prayer meeting. You'd attend church every day if you could. You tithe and you pray and you fast. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with all of that. But if you don't have love, what an absolutely catastrophic, fundamental waste of time. Church, pack up and go home. The church has got to be filled with love. He didn't care how spiritual you think you are. If you don't know how to love, you're a clanging cymbal, a loud, obnoxious, repetitive sound. The inevitable result of using spiritual gifts without love is others become offended. So Jesus didn't care how spiritual you think you are. The Apostle Paul didn't care 
If you don't know how to love, you're a clanging cymbal and that obnoxious sound. Author Carla Works, interesting name for it to be writing about this passage about works, has written, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' teaching has announced and illustrated the kingdom of God here on earth. God's kingdom does not function like a typical kingdom. The divine reign has invaded the world, and this is good news, especially to those who are on the fringes of society. This rule welcomes those who have no status and seeks to serve others rather than exploit them. As you know, I've just come back from Europe, had a wonderful time there, been there a couple of other times. But I come back and visit some of the churches and I visit places like Buckingham Palace or I visit the Vatican and I go, man, the wealth is sometimes obscene. And you've got the poor still on the doorsteps of the Vatican as beggars. The righteous, they've inherited the kingdom. Those who claim to follow Jesus and hope to endure to the end are called to live faithfully to look out for the least and the last, and the lost. Those who have experienced God's kingdom cannot go back to how life once was. And Alex, that'll be true for you, mate. You're going to go, you know, you say you don't have much of a story. You still have a story. Every one of us has a story. But your life is going to be radically different now as Jesus has intersected your life. And you can't go back to the way it was. Stanley Harris writes, the difference between followers of Jesus and those who don't know Jesus is that those who have seen Jesus no longer have any excuse to avoid the least of these. So who are today, who are the least, the last and the lost? It's a very simple question, but one we've got to ask. Who here has heard of the term social invisibility? Anybody heard that? Just a few of us. It's a term used to describe certain people in society who have become separated or systematically ignored by the majority culture. As a result, according to Wikipedia, these people who are marginalised feel neglected or invisible. It can include those in elderly homes, orphanages, homeless people, or anyone who experiences a sense of being ignored or separated from society as a whole. Invisible people are often victims of systematic racism or abuse or inner city decay, discrimination, generational poverty, trauma, these things in life that shape us as well. And I know over the last three weeks, I've been listening to your sermons online. You know, there's some challenging things said by some of the presenters about how the church should respond to those in need. Radhika Cruz has written, I heard somebody say, the only, thing, the only thing worse than being alone, and by the way, Mother Teresa said many decades ago, um, what was going to be one of the Western world's biggest challenges, she said that we're suffering and we will suffer from a pandemic of loneliness. About 40% of Melburnians live in houses by themselves, lonely, isolated. But Radhika Cruz has written, the only thing worse than being alone is being invisible because you feel as if you're dead and you're forgotten by others. When I think of the invisibles in our society, I think of immigrants and the indigenous, the modern day orphan, uh, the widow, the homeless, destitute, the displaced, the refugee, uh, the mentally ill, the ex-offenders and minorities. Sometimes it's people living in public housing or projects, 
uh, the invisibles in our society are the disadvantaged, the disenfranchised, the disconnected, and the distraught. A sense of disconnectedness from the surrounding world is often experienced by invisible people. They feel like they've got no power. A sense of disconnectedness comes easily. Well, my family and I, as I've said, have been very fortunate enough to have taken a holiday in Europe this winter, and I, I love escaping Melbourne's winter. So we got to experience Europe's summer, uh, which was pretty hot, according to all those TV and newspaper reports you might have read. But it wasn't my first trip to a place like the Vatican. But on this trip, I took note of a new addition in St. Peter's Square. It's called Angels Unawares. It's a bronze sculpture by an artist called Timothy Schmaltz. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen this. It was installed in St. Peter's Square in the Vatican uh, in 2019 uh, for the 105th World Migrant and Refugee Day. It was the first time, get this, it was the first time in 400 years that a new sculpture was installed in St. Vatican Square, in St. Peter's Square. This statue was inaugurated by Pope Francis, and it's at its inauguration, Pope Francis said he wanted the sculpture to remind everyone of the evangelical challenge of hospitality, opening yourself up to those that don't have homes or have food or those that have need amongst us. He wanted to remind everyone by installing this, this particular sculpture of that. This six metre long sculpture depicts a group of migrants and refugees on a boat wearing clothes that show they originate from diverse cultures and historical moments. For example, there's a Jew fleeing Nazi Germany. There's a, a Syrian departing the Syrian civil war. There's a Pole escaping the communist re regime. And the sculptor of the work said he wanted to show the different moods and emotions involved in migrants' journey. Previously, the artist had already made sculptures of a similar theme as Homeless Jesus. The work includes angel wings, and though through which the author suggests that a migrant is secretly an angel in our midst. And the artist's inspiration was Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Angels unawares. It's a beautiful sculpture. And basically, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever been to the Vatican, it's got these amazing archways, these columns that are actually to depict open arms to a world in need. I love the, the idea behind the architecture of that. But the reality is the church, and I'm talking very generically, the church in general haven't always been good at loving the world. The church haven't always been very good at embracing the least, the last, and the lost. It was probably, as I travelled through Europe in summer, it was probably about day two or three that I became increasingly aware of the number of beggars and homeless around us. Now, we often see that more in the summer months. We see it here for those that have eyes in Melbourne. But as I travelled across, across Europe, there were obviously lots struggling with homelessness and they often appear more obvious in those warmer months, but they're still there in the cooler seasons. You just have to look a bit harder. And it was day two or three that I dropped some cash in the, the cup of one of these beggars. And the old man who was sitting on the ground tilted his head up 
because he had it downcast. Uh, all of a sudden, when he saw some cash in his cup, almost bewildered, what's going on here? Somebody's actually dropped some money in there. And he looked genuinely surprised as my wife and I walked off. But then my wife, Michelle, asked me, why did I give him money and not the many others that we'd seen in the days prior? Why did I give him anything at all? Because it's easy to feel overwhelmed about the needs of those around us. And certainly it's not possible to solve solve all the problems all by ourselves. However, it is possible for us to open up our eyes and take a look around afresh. It is possible for us to respond to one, maybe one that the Lord lays on our heart. It is possible to be sensitive to the prompt of the Holy Spirit, where God said, no, it's that one, but you give something to him, where I didn't receive that same prompt in the past. It is possible for us to discern one's with real needs and perhaps others that are just doing that to take advantage of all the tourists that are there. Barack Obama, actually in a speech in 2006, said, faith is not just something you have. Alex, faith is not just something you have. Here's the previous president of the United States saying, it's something you do as well. Faith is not just something you have, it's something you do. So I'm not here to put a guilt trip on any of us. But I'm saying, is it possible to open our eyes afresh to the least and the last and the lost? Because we all fall into the same category of just living in our own comfortable world sometimes. But the Holy Spirit wants to shake us up out of complacency and comfort and stretch us a little bit. In the new Donnybrook estate that we're in, it's not just me and my wife reaching out to this particular guy who I'll call Michael for today. It's actually our whole community. So you don't have to do it by yourself either. And we're just reaching out to Michael. There'll be others that we don't know about around in our surrounding communities. But Michael is someone we can help. At the moment, suffering some trauma, suffering some mental illness, disenfranchised from his wife and his little boy, living in a property that's almost given to him at the moment to be used. We can help him in some practical ways. And he's responding favorably to that. So who's the Lord asking you just to get alongside, maybe just to listen to their story? I don't know if any of you regularly go into the city. There are some regulars out there as well that'll actually almost harass you for some money. But have you ever thought about sitting down with someone and just asking them, tell me your story? Or are you like many of us that are just so busy, we have to get on and we miss the least and the last and the lost? Let me finish with a poem. My life shall touch a dozen lives before this day is done. Leave countless marks for good or ill, ere sets the evening sun. This is the wish I always wish, the prayer I always pray. Lord, may my life help other lives. It touches by the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for scripture. It sometimes disturbs the comfortable so that the disturbed might be comfort. Lord, help us be your witnesses in this broken and hurting world. Help us who have the kingdom at hand demonstrate kingdom values in the world in which we live. Shake us out of a complacency or a comfort when we need to be. And Lord, help us be your witnesses, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.